Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. And this episode's guest stands out from the crowd of garden variety musicians as a true rose. Hi, everyone. My name is Cassandra Rose. Delayed departure. Back to the gate. A little light blinks. Our evening at stake. Dinner at six or seven. Maybe eight. The first thing that hooks you about Cassandra Rose is that hauntingly beautiful siren voice. Although it's virtually impossible to separate that from the ethereal poetry and mysterious pull of the songs themselves. Then again, she's just as likely to disarm you with a childlike ditty about an aimlessly floating cartoon cloud. A dancer turned actor turned singer who also dabbles in aerial gymnastics and animation, Cassandra knows what she wants when she finds it, but she's always restlessly searching for it. In the meantime, she's made her mark as a solo performer in the Tampa Bay area and around the eastern U.S., and earned a place in the talented St. Pete Artists Collective, known as the Florida Bee Orchestra. Fittingly, we spent part of our last episode with Bee Orchestra founder Jeremy Douglas weighing in on his creative process producing Cassandra's song Out of Thin Air. And as a special treat, we get to compare Cassandra's live version of that tune here in this episode. In conversation, we found her to be refreshingly honest, funny, and down-to-earth, and we think you'll be as charmed as we were to get to know Cassandra Rose. We generally start all of our guests with, where are you from? I am from Muskegon, Michigan, which if you are looking at your uh, right hand, the palm of your right hand, it is going to be just at the base of your pinky finger. It's almost Wisconsin over there. Almost. If there weren't like a three-hour boat ride over, but yeah, it's close. What's in in between there? Lake Superior? Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It doesn't make around? sense when you're in Chicago that it's Lake Michigan, but when you're in Michigan, it makes sense that it's Lake Michigan. You were born there or you grew up there? Yeah, I was born there, and I was there until I moved away uh, for college. Um, and living in small town Muskegon was, it was nice. I, I was one of those kids that I got to play outside until the streetlights came on. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we had a lot next to our house that was a forest. We would build forts. We would you know, make leaf piles and jump in them. And, um, so it was, it was really nice. But then as you get older, you're like, I have to get out of this small town. (laughs) But my, uh, my parents were musicians. My mom was a singer. She played keyboards. My dad, um, was a drummer. So they had a little duo that they would go out and play. I remember like New Year's Eve, many New Year's Eves, we would have to spend the night at our grandparents' house because my parents had a gig somewhere. Um, was that their full-time thing? You know, it was... They were doing the gig economy before the gig economy was the gig economy. Oh. Um, so I think 
from memory, you know, they always had a, a few things going on. Um, and I know my mom did music full time for a while. Um, but then I think when she had my sister and I, um, I think that they both took on work. Honestly, I don't remember at what point my mom like stopped doing music full time. Um, but I grew up listening to her harmonize with things. I'd watch her learn songs, which was like playing the record player or playing the tape player ad nauseum, you know, and writing down lyrics because you can't do like a Google search or whatever. Um, so like, I remember that just being a part of, you know, the environment at home, just like music all the time. And what kind of stuff were they playing? But um, play, when they're playing out, what kind of stuff are they playing and what were they playing around the house? Uh, truthfully, like we didn't really go out to their gigs. So aside from my mom being like, oh, I used to play this song. I don't, I don't really know. You know, pop, I'm sure she was playing like top 40 hits mm-hmm. of the day um, and of previous, you know, cause she was playing a lot of like Moose Lodges and American Legions and stuff like that were like the big um, places that she'd, she'd play. Yeah, I was going to ask how, how much gig economy there was in a small town. Well, she would travel. Um, and I think actually, bef- I don't know if it was before her and my dad. Uh, gosh, I should have asked my mom all these questions before I came here. Um, I think she was either married to my dad or they were going to get married. She actually was like down in Nashville, like going to record like a record. Well, let's or call she her was up. recording like a demo, I think, in Nashville. Um, Get her on the phone. Put yeah. her on speaker. Yeah. Do you want me to call my mom? <laughs> <laughs> what time is it? Um, but the, you know, she would travel quite a bit because there wasn't a ton of work just in Muskegon. So she was kind of traveling all over um, Michigan. But again, that was I think most of that happened before my sister and I were really cognizant of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, like you know, they had a van with the back end cleared out so they could fit all the music gear because music gear was huge back then. Mm-hmm. Like, lar- I don't mean huge, like popular. I mean like large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everything <laughs> took was up just a lot of space. Really big, yeah. Um, and they, you know, they positioned the bench in there off to the side of the van instead of you know facing forward so that my sister and I could fit, but they could also fit all of their music gear in. So lots of memories of that. Um, and that's always neat to think about. I always secretly wanted to be a singer, but I started dancing instead because that was also like a big, a big thing for me. But I think secretly deep down, I like I thought it'd be cool to be a singer. And now you are. And now I am. So the dance was that like dance lessons and all of that. Or? Dance lessons. I got a scholarship in New York City mm-hmm. for as a dance major. Um, really? Yeah. And then I dropped out, and I don't know how my parents didn't murder me. Like, really thinking about it. I'm like, how? What? <laughs> Did they try? <laughs> no, they were cool. They so were supportive. So were you a devoted, like, dance student? You know, hours and hours of rehearsal and lessons? And... I, I was. You yeah. know, I there was a lot of time into it. I would do uh, summer intensives. Um, I did a European tour that was... I guess it's not really considered professional since I had to pay for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to pay for the travel. But... Um, you know, that experience, we had like a, a two-week session um, where you'd wake up, you'd eat breakfast, you'd dance, you'd eat lunch, you'd dance, you'd eat dinner, you'd dance, you'd have a snack in your bunk, and then you'd go to bed. And that was two weeks. Like, it was intense. Um, Sounds fun. Dancing intense is not easy either. Just, well, Actually, we were in cabins. It was at like a camp. 
Um, but I spent a lot of time doing it. And then also in retrospect, like, you know, when I got to New York City, I just, even though I had a scholarship, like, I, I didn't have um, a lot of what you would need to be a professional dancer. I don't know that I ever would have gotten there, even if I would have stuck with it. I don't know. I mean, in terms of mental... Uh toughness uh, mental toughness because um, I know, know it's a heart it's like a, yeah like true devotion to it in in the sense of you know all this like you know it was really fun when I was doing it it was a good outlet for me I think it rescued me you know when my dad died when I was 11 I think it gave me something to throw myself into mm-hmm. um, that wasn't a bunch of other things that could have been you know much worse for me mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I got to New York City, it was just like it wasn't fun anymore. It didn't feel like an outlet. I don't think that I had the heart to do all the things I needed to do. To, I needed more flexibility. I needed more strength. I needed to be devoting more time to, you know, the intricate parts of it. And I just had, like, no social ability at that time. I didn't understand the value of networking. And I, I knew people in New York City. Like, like, I had people there that were connected to things. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't know how to take advantage of that yeah yeah i i just didn't know how um and i didn't intend for this to be a segue but um so much of what i ended up regretting so much of the things that i was lacking at the time in new york city um you know i've spent on my singing career trying to shore that up Mm -hmm. like okay well this is a huge mistake that i made and i don't want to do that again and um, Savannah Tree, one of the songs that I'm going to play for you, mm-hmm. um, that song is about um, quitting my, basically quitting my day job to focus on music full time. Because mm-hmm. for as long as I've been playing music in Florida, I've had like a, a part time job, like a sufficient, hearty part time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote Savannah Tree right when I was like, well, let me just, what if I just devoted all my energy to music? And, and one of my fears was that. I would just do New York City all over again. Because mm-hmm. I dropped out of school because it was like school had such a strict attendance policy for dancing. If you missed two classes first semester, you'd be failed for that semester. And there was one morning I didn't wake up in time because the battery popped up, like popped out of my alarm clock. And I was just like... Strike one. Uh, yeah. 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 And so it just felt you know like a lot of pressure. And, and then on top of that, it was like you couldn't audition for anything. So while you're in college... Many auditions are held at the same time classes are held, right? Morning, okay. right. afternoon. Um, you know, how am I supposed to get this audition experience if I have to be at school? Like, there should be some attendance exception, like, prove that you went to an audition. How is that not also experience? Because that's, you know, just a skill on its own. Mm-hmm. Seems like they would allow for that. Yeah, uh, and so so I dropped out of school and because um, I was like, I'm going to audition, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, you know, just audition and go to classes at Broadway Dance Center and like meet people. And like right after I did that, 9-11 happened. Um, and so that shook up the city, that shook up me. Um, and not that I'm blaming that on how everything progressed, but I know that that, um, that was tough. I mean, I was down here in Florida watching it on TV and it shook me to my core. I was in an apartment uh, on the Upper East Side 
And like later in that day, we had the windows open because it was a hot day. Later in that day, we had to close the windows because smoke and, you know, everything had drifted uptown Mm -hmm. and was coming through the windows. Um, You know, I didn't I didn't lose anything on that day. You know, um, there's just nothing to compare to what other people went through. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a kid from a small town in Michigan, I'm 19. I don't know what I'm doing. It's still part of your experience there. Um, and then I'm in this musical theater class. I'm trying singing. Um, the the vocal coach for that class like chastised me because I sounded like a lounge singer. And I was already really terrified to get up and sing in front of that class. Anyway, I fell on my face. Like, I dropped out of college, and then I just didn't do anything. I just sat in the apartment. In New York City. In New York City. You stayed in New York. Uh, yeah. Because the auditions weren't going well, and you didn't enjoy the experience. Um, I so... went to a handful of auditions, and I felt already very jaded by them. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, there, I went to an audition for 42nd Street when they were doing the revival. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time, was a very strong tapper. Like, not the best ballet dancer. I liked modern, didn't really have the flexibility, but like I was, I was a solid tap dancer. People say that about you. I'm like, hey, we're interviewing Cassandra. Is like great vocalist, but man, what a <laughs> tapper! <laughs> that lady could tap dance. Um, not so much anymore, but at the time, like you know, I knew it was pretty strong, and uh, you know, it was an open call. So it's just a madhouse, and they were like videoing it for they're going to put it on television or whatever. Um, not my segment, but like, right. just like the whole, that's how big of a deal it was. It was a big deal. And, uh, so they, they do, they give us choreography, which is just like a very simple time step, simple, easy. Like this choreography is not complicated. I'm like, I got this and I got it. And it nailed like the routine. And, um, and then I watched as they picked like other women who couldn't tap dance but who were like five foot eight blonde and had boobs. And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> like, okay. Like I can't, I can't compete with that. Like, you know, it doesn't matter. And that was just one experience. But the reality was I just didn't have the, um, the, the mental capacity to get through that, to push through that. And um, so I ended up sitting in my apartment in New York City and not doing anything that I told myself I was going to do when I dropped out of school. And so, getting back to Savannah Tree, when I uh, was going to stop working part-time and just pursue music, I was very, very scared that I would make the same mistakes. And I'm still scared. And, you know, I try every day to stay as productive as I can, and it just never feels like enough. When did you make that decision and Uh, leave the job? Uh, like December of 2016, I think. Okay. Well, let's get a little a little roadmap of chronology here. So you were sitting in the apartment. You said you're about 19. How long did you do that for? Like. And were you working at all? Like, did you pick up side jobs? Or you just kind of like, I'm gonna run out of money. I'm gonna move somewhere else. Yeah. Um. I. I mean, I. I was not totally unproductive. I was in that musical theater class. Um. I got accepted to the Atlantic Theater Company. Um. I I just didn't I didn't enjoy that experience um and I also didn't finish that course but I did take vocal lessons from Steve Sweetland who um is a vocal coach for or has been a vocal co- coach for a number of um folks in New York City um and 
not to name drop, but Seth <laughs> MacFarland oh. is one of his students, which I didn't know until years later. Um, but I was like, oh, that's my vocal coach. <laughs> and that was one of the best things that I did. Um, because what Steve Sweetland taught me was how to use my voice in a way that would be long lasting mm-hmm. and not damaging. For health. Yeah. And that in itself was like worth my experience there. That and all like the learning experiences about myself and who I am and, you know, all of that. But so taking the vocal lessons was was a really good um, thing. And I was taking dance classes from Broadway Dance Center, but at some point it was just like, okay, well, this isn't, this isn't working. And I can't just start a career singing in New York City without any experience. Because like, honestly, when I started singing, I wasn't good. I could carry a tune, but like, I didn't know what I was doing. And you were starting out. I mean, it wasn't like you yeah. had pursued that. Or, yeah, or... I, I thought I was a dancer who could sing. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, I guess it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that at the time. And then was there a point where you decided, I just need to get out of New York City and relocate somewhere else? And Yeah, the getting a job at an entry-level position doing anything was, um, especially in the job economy after 9-11, there was like very challenging. I'd put in resumes to a handful of places, but um, ultimately I think I got an offer from Barnes and Noble Mm -hmm. three months after I had submitted a resume and it was right before I was going to leave. And it was just like, well, that's, you know, not going to pay rent in New York city working at Barnes and Noble. Stick stick around for this big break. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to move to California Mm -hmm. and my parents were like, like we supported you and they had a condo in Clearwater and they're like why don't you just go down to Clearwater get New York out of your system sort yourself out figure out what you want to do from there and then I will send you a bill (laughs) I know no they were very generous they were more generous than they should have been maybe you know Um, again I look back I'm like how did you not murder me Um, well there's a legal issue there (laughs) (laughs) that's true I'm sure it was just because of that yeah that's probably what it was yeah yeah Um, I didn't want to go to jail right yeah yeah um moved down to Florida and you know I wanted to start working because what what am I going to do you know it only seemed right to work and figure it out and I got a job at a dance studio and then I decided I should start singing and I didn't realize what like a rich area this was for music and I got hooked up with a top 40s band with a bass player who could sell an ice cube to an Eskimo you know uh, maybe I should pick a different metaphor (laughs) Um, it's okay he just he was hungry for work and he would book all the we'd play 10 nights in a row sometimes so then I was 22 making money hand over fist I'm calling my mom and I could be like let me pay you rent like, just as a lead singer, you weren't playing an instrument. At I was time. not playing an instrument. Yeah. I was just like singing and he was hungry for work and I was willing. And, um, I was working a part-time job as well, like on top of singing. And that was when the economy was like phenomenal. And so it was like, Oh, like I can, I'm, I'm doing this. Okay. Well, well, so that's pretty exciting then. So you went from a string of things that were pretty upsetting to all of a sudden you took a risk. And well, and I'd say too. Also, you actually did something. You sought out a band, mm-hmm. so you did take a step. You did, you know, because I think that's important. One of the things that is a focus of this show is 
how are you making things happen for yourself? And yeah. not just even you, but but anybody who's out there trying to do this. If you're just starting out, whether you're super early to the game and you started singing really young or started singing late, you've been gigging for a while or you haven't, like even just figuring out how to find a musical community and so much of it is like you have to make some of it happen for yourself. You have to go out and seek it out and you have yeah. to ask ask for the sale sometimes. Yeah, I you know, even now I'm constantly asking for things. And it's a weird a weird place to be in. And I don't know if it's a if it's a gendered thing, but I have a lot of female friends in different industries um that always talk to me about um you know, they've been in a job for 10 years. And they want, you know, they want a raise or something. And and to me, I'm like constantly asking for, you know, I'm quoting gigs at prices that I just am trying to price myself out of the gig or, you know, I'll quote them high and be like, but I'm willing to work with your budget. And sometimes they'll take my high rate. And I'm like, oh, this is something that I do you weekly. You have to go for it. Yeah. You know, like this is something that's like always, you know, it's not like once every five years when I'm looking for a new job, but this is like every week. <laughs> And a lot of females in my circle are like, well, I don't want to ask for a raise. What if I make them mad? Or, and I'm like, they, they'll just tell you no. They're not going to fire you because you right. ask for more, you know. And so that's definitely a skill that I've learned. But it is something that I have con- like constantly have to remind myself. Because sometimes you feel like, well, why don't I have that gig? And it's like, no, ask for the gig. And they'll probably give you the gig. But it's, it's hard. It's, um, you know, you, you're constantly having to prove yourself. Talk a little bit about transitioning out from being a, a singer in the band and then deciding. Are, are you playing guitar at this point? When did you decide to make that shift to? Um, I had bought a guitar for myself as a graduation present uh, from high school, but I didn't really take it seriously until I was in the band. And then it was like, oh, this would be kind of like an easy way, like I could just learn a couple of songs. And at this point, I, you know, with the band, they were great. They were very accommodating. They let me play whatever I wanted. Um, they encouraged me to pick up the acoustic guitar and play on songs and stuff. But there were other problems, you know, as as bands have. So I was like, I want to play solo. I knew that was something that would be reachable for me, even though my guitar skills are kind of subpar. Um, and at the time, even worse. And uh, I bought a PA and quit the band. And I was still working a part-time job, so it didn't feel very risky. You know, it was just like, well, I'll buy this PA and I'll play enough solo gigs to pay off the PA. And then if I decide that I don't want to do it anymore, I'll sell the PA and I won't be out any money and, and that'll be that. And then it kind of just turned into more and more work and you know more and more people um, and, you know, gigs beget gigs. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a slow transition but never felt really risky because I, it wasn't the only thing that I was doing. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't like that level of risk. And I think the same thing with dance where when it became like, this is what you have to do and the stakes are very high. That's when I stopped enjoying it. And so it's even still now with music, it's teetering a very fine line of like, you know, how many cover gigs are too many cover gigs? That's a great question. You know, and, and what venues do I, do, do I not mind playing cover gigs for and could mm-hmm. do so forever? And what gigs have I just like, like, just a soul sucker. I, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm just a sign spinner on the side of a road, mm-hmm. like trying to get people in and they don't care who you are as a human. But when you're, you know, playing music full time, you don't feel like you have as much flexibility in, in those choices. So 
it still is teetering a fine line and it's a struggle every day to not experience burnout and do enough at home so that way when you get out into the world like you're still satisfied with your job well and i'm interested too were you nervous about going solo because that is a thing you know so for me at least when i i I didn't start doing my own solo thing or even front a band until my mid-20s and i had toured a band for years and i'm almost a decade before that um you know as part of the rhythm section or playing guitar and but, you know, never on my own. And I was really nervous about that. Even having been really comfortable on stage, having done some bigger performances, um, you know, do you think that dancing and then also being in that cover band helped you not be nervous about that? Or were you really nervous about it? I was nervous about it. And I still have my days where, like, I'm, anytime I play at a new venue, I'm nervous. When I play original songs in a very small environment, very nervous. And, and I, but I think that is what helps prevent burnout is like if you stop being nervous for things then it's like you have to find the next thing that like gets you out of your comfort zone i think maybe exhilaration is a little bit of a yeah you know i for me i don't have a deviation in those feelings for me it's just like scared and nervous and anxious and i have a hard time like defining like was that exhilarating (laughs) or was i just anxious through that for me i think it's always just like i'm nervous and anxious and i just know i have to push through it and i would never look back and call it like (laughs) exhilarating (laughs) like when i'm done i'm like oh i feel very accomplished and euphoric Mm -hmm. but in it i don't like that sensation well but that's an interesting thing we've had some other guests talk about this and you don't strike me as an introvert per se but um you know, people that are introvert. I mean, Ed is a, a bit of an introvert too. And then, yet they're doing this thing that makes them really nervous to some degree, um, but is also very gratifying. You know, and it's interesting to hear you say that you're. It gives you a bunch of sensations you wouldn't otherwise maybe enjoy. But then at the end, you're like, okay, I'm really glad I did that. Well, even um, I think inherently I'm introverted, but I have for so long been in occupations where I have been forced to not to be introverted that I can pretend like I'm an extrovert. That's me too. I've learned tricks to... Yeah. And I um, so I teach group fitness classes. And when I was doing that a lot, I was I was introverted. At my gigs, I was introverted. Like, especially when I first started out. And people would just think that I was, you know, a bitch. Like, literally, mm-hmm. I had people, like, call me a bitch. And I'm just like, I don't know. I just don't want to talk to people. <laughs> and... I think um, teaching group fitness classes was one of the things that helped break the dam for that because it was like I had people come into this room and they're way more nervous than I am because they've like maybe they've never exercised in their life before and they're looking at me like we want you to make us comfortable and I'm like but I'm nervous and then it was like oh it doesn't matter how I feel I need to make these other people comfortable and so that was a skill that I learned over time and like I you know various other jobs in the public light life, but like taking that aspect of commanding a room, commanding a room, essentially. Yeah. And I still struggle with that at some gigs behind a microphone. Like if it's a house concert and everyone's paying attention, I feel pretty good about that. Totally. They're already on your side. Yeah. Like they're on my side, like, especially if they understand my sense of humor, which is, you know, I know sometimes I'm pretty dry. So people don't even know I'm kidding. They just think I'm being dumb or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, in a room where, like, everyone's talking. If it's a three-hour gig, for instance, like, no one paid for a ticket. No one's there to see a show. Right. Your background music. I have a really hard time in that environment um, commanding a crowd. 
Because well, I've, I've watched other musicians, like, they're very comfortable, they're able to, you know, chat with people, and I'm good one-on-one. If there's a table right in front of me, I can joke around with them. And I think those kind of gigs, though, you have to find those pockets of people yeah. that are there to pay attention and enjoy the music. Because some of those people aren't there, really. They want the music to be background. Well, and there's a difference between the cover gig, right? The, you know, the bank builder gig. Yeah. And then, like... The ones you do for you, yeah, you know? and the, and the ones that, you know that people are there to hear your original music. That's a much different thing. And playing covers in a room that's not listening to you is one thing, but playing your original stuff in a room that's not listening to you is that's that's hard. That's not a good feeling for anyone. Do you play your originals in that type of environment? Um, yeah, I do. Depending on the gig, you know, a lot of gigs I'm hired as a cover artist. I'll play cover gigs or cover songs. I'll slip some of my originals in there if they're appropriate. You know, I'd never play like the songs I played for you this evening or I'm going to play for you this evening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't do those at like traditional happy cover gig, but I have lots of original songs. Cause they're not happy. Cause they're not happy. Yeah. Or they're slow, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I have plenty of originals that are like super strummy and upbeat and mm-hmm. like seem happy and maybe just sound like a song people haven't heard before mm-hmm. that, that like maybe is popular and they just don't know it. Mm-hmm. So I'll sneak those in and I don't, I don't mind yeah, if I lose a crowd when they're supposed to be a listening crowd, then I'm just like, what have I done wrong, you know? Um, but if it's... I do have venues that are three hours, and they're fine with all originals, and I will. Um, even if no one's paying attention. I'm just like, well, I have an opportunity to do this. Like, the venue doesn't mind that I do this. They're happy that I'm bringing this to them. Mm-hmm. I want to take advantage of that. There's yeah. so few of them out there that if they're okay with me playing original music... Yeah. I think an interesting thing that we're skipping over here is that, oh, okay, you know, and Cassandra's writing original music, but that's, you know, you hadn't been doing that from what we understand. Um, you know, you started dancing at 11, you moved to New York, where you, you weren't really dabbling in any type of music other than, you know, the stuff that you were doing is getting some vocal coaching. And, you know, yeah. when did you start writing music? Like, are you somebody that journaled? And I journaled a lot um, from the time I was in high school. I really got interested in poetry. Have you kept um, all your journals? Yeah. Yeah. Even like the, the super shitty ones. And I like to keep the process of writing a song too. You know, because sometimes after you've written a song and it's been several years, you're just like, how did I just spit that song out? Like, and you keep in- incremental changes, like you keep all your edits and yeah, like you keep records. Because it's so interesting. You go back and you look through those pages and you're like, um, oh, I didn't just spit that song out. Like, that song went through, look at all these edits, you know, and and how many bridges did I write until I found the right one or decided it didn't need a bridge or... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. But poetry was always... um, I I loved it. I love language. I Like, when I was in high school, I would just dig through a thesaurus to find alternate words and different ways of saying things. And um, expanding my vocabulary was always something I thought was interesting. I enjoyed it. in fact, like when I went to school in New York, I was so excited about different books and authors and stuff that like people I was just meeting thought that I was an English major. <laughs> do do you like, have a, or did you, or do, do you have a couple favorite poets? And I, and I ask that because your lyrics are very poetic. There's thank a lot you. of poetry in them. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I love Rumi. Oh yeah. Who's mm-hmm. like the ancient Sufi. Mm-hmm. Um, his philosophies too, just the way that he looked at things, I found fascinating. But the and I understand it's all translation, but just the man, I love his stuff. He was a big influence. Um, different songwriters of my era, 
you know, I'd always be super into the lyrics and dig deep into that. Anybody specific there? Sarah McLaughlin, Fiona Apple, uh, Alanis Morissette. Um, although lyrically, now when I look back on it, I don't find her stuff as engaging. I think Fiona Apple has a lot of poetry, especially in like that first album. It's just yeah. like the way that she would describe things. You're just like, where, mm-hmm. how? Um, Joni Mitchell, especially when I found out Joni Mitchell wanted to be a poet and then you know you just the way she constructs a song mm-hmm. how can it be linear but you just like it still is cohesive and like musically oh yeah no, she's important for so many um and jewel because jewel was very accessible when i was playing guitar also you know she had two chord songs <laughs> 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 oh i can learn this okay <laughs> you know um so that was really important for the for learning guitar for me um, because her songs are very accessible. I could learn them by ear. Um, I enjoyed singing along with them. I think lyrically thinking about them now, maybe not as Mm -hmm. interesting. It's interesting. And I want to ask specifically about a couple other artists because when we listen to your record, we just had Jeremy Douglas on prior, who I know obviously has helped a lot with your records, um, specifically your, the 2017 one. Um, And a lot of that, the stuff, well, at least the one we listened to with Jeremy, um, which is uh, what Out of Thin Air, mm-hmm. I believe, which is an awesome song. It's it's to me, I heard like garbage. Um, okay, and almost like they, they went through. <laughs> I know that, you're talking about the band. Yes, the band. Let me <laughs> let me qualify. <laughs> I thought it was just like garbage. I thought it was flaming garbage. Yeah, Jeremy, this is garbage. This is garbage. <laughs> Uh, let me let me back up. The band Garbage, uh, who obviously is known for a phenomenal female vocalist, um, but it's just it's it's got this really cool feel. Like some of their stuff, especially I think specifically they did a song for one of the Bond movies um, that has that feel of just like it's very orchestral, uh, you know. But it's it's dark, but it moves a lot, um, and it's very uh, audibly interesting, you know. Um, and so, I, I don't know if you're a garbage fan at all, if there's any of that in there. Well, I think Jeremy brought that, because what I gave him was a melody, the words I had, um, and it was all up against, like, a stock bass line in Logic. Or, I think I was using GarageBand at the time, I don't even think I was in Logic. I don't remember, it doesn't matter. For the non-musical people, GarageBand is a very light musical resource compared to some of the heavier ones, like Logic. Like Logic. Um, you know, I'm trying to pull an album together. I think it's going to be something completely different. And, you know, Jeremy would just kind of be like, well, do you have anything else? Do you have anything else? Do you have anything else? Because this one's garbage. Because this one's garbage. (laughs) And so I sent him out of thin air. And to me, because I really hadn't fleshed it out, you know, personally, it was just against this like baseline that I didn't even write the baseline, you know? And I'm like, here's this throwaway track. Like, if you think you can do something with it, like, cool. You know, whatever. And he sends it back to me, and he brought all of that stuff to it. So I can't take credit for that. That is him. Like, those, the influences that you hear in there, I think... Well, you can take credit for planting the seed, like, for inspiring him to, to build around it. Yeah, and, um, you know, the depth that he gives it, you mm-hmm. know, the, the musical complexity that he brings to it is something that is just not in my wheelhouse. Um, but I'm glad I didn't throw that track away because I am very happy with it lyrically. Um, you know, I, I'm very pleased with the melody. 
um, and how that all kind of came out. But it just seemed like a throwaway to me because I, I wrote it because I was out of things to write. Well, it's interesting because people, I mean, the, you, there's so many different techniques for songwriting. You know, some people are even doing a less conscious choice than that, like cutting up words, pages, and putting the words back together in random order. I mean, anything that will anything. give a, a creative spark. Yeah. Especially since you're saying you kind of like written a whole album and you needed a, a song or two more. And honestly, like, I always hate to tell this because I don't want people to think about it when they hear the song. And I think it has other meanings. But when I was writing it humorously for myself, um, I chose the phrase out of thin air, like pull it out of thin air, meaning like kind of the creative process or the, whatever you're trying to make. Like The song itself. Yeah, the song, pull it out of thin air. What, I'm what glad I really, you shared that. Well, what I really wanted to say was like, I'm just pulling this out of my ass. Mm -hmm. That makes for <laughs> much less catchy chorus. It's not as poetic. when you, Exactly. Poetic. Like... Um, out of my yeah, you know it's yeah. We can try it. Mm -hmm. Let's, we're gonna do a version like that before Excellent. you leave. It'll be the Weird Al version. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I always hesitate to talk about it because I don't want people to think about it when they hear the song. But that you know, I for me, I was like, I'm just pulling this out of my ass, and it was like, oh, pull it out of thin air, and then it kind of. That song is sort of my philosophy on life anyway. Like anything that you do, you are the seed that starts it. Everything that you do. You create your own... Yeah, you have to pull everything from nothing. But you, you pulled some valuable nuggets. I mean, some of the lyrics in that song still... Like, they all have weight, you know? And to your point, like, people can take meanings from all types of stuff. But yeah. yes, you're pulling it out of any orifice that you decide <laughs> that you had pulled it out of. But, but when you did, you also... You know, you, you're pulling from you know, a, a pretty rich vocabulary of, you know, thought and lyrical or journal writing process. And I mean, the, the lyric about, and you can break it down perfectly for us, um, especially when you do it here for us in a minute, but the part about clutching pearls, like I love that visual as part mm -hmm. of that line. And like, that's, yes, it's out of thin air, but you're not just like blanketly rapping, you know? I mean, there's, there's, this, you're, t you're telling a story there. You're, you know, you are saying something with the song. Yeah. Um, it's just the dichotomy of, like, does a simple shrug make a victim? You saying, like, like you can take these things that happen to you and be like, okay, well, that happened, and, and woe is me, and I'm a victim. Or you can take that thing that happened to you and transform it into something that's positive for you. How can you change your world with that thing that could have made you a victim? Because you can, you know, you have both options, just moving forward in life, not even in songwriting. And that's how you experience life, is that these things just happen to you, and... And you have no control over it, and that's that. Or it's like, okay, yeah, that thing happened to me, but like, I'm going to transform that into something positive for me. How can I move forward from that? What can I learn? How can I change in the future? Um, so somehow that throwaway song for me just turned into like, oh yeah, this is that's actually my life philosophy. It's funny that you say it's your, th your throwaway song because that's one of my favorite ones on that record. <laughs> it's funny how that always happens to people, though, right? When they're like, ah, right, this one little thing. I know we're done recording, but I just you know play this little lick, yeah. and then you're like, oh my god. Put, put that on, that has to go on the record, you know? Well, it's funny you say it at least partially comes from a place of being stuck or having to, you know, force something out. But I think it also comes from a place that a lot of people find themselves in. It's like, what's my next step? You know, there's a void in front of me. How do I approach that? How do I make something meaningful out of that? Yeah. Um, what, what do I want to see in front of me? Like, mm -hmm. how, how can I, you know, affect that change? Mm -hmm. um, you want to play that one for us? Sure. Let's hear it. 
quick interlude about one of the companies supporting this podcast. Ed, I think we can both agree that the best tasting songs are those that happen naturally. That's true. Wait, you can't really taste a song, though. That part's not... That's also true of the food we choose to consume, which is why our favorite new artist on the healthy protein charts is ButcherBox. 100% grass-fed beef delivered on dry ice to your door anywhere in the lower 48. So, does that make Alaska like the upper... Ed, just open the box. If you're into more genres than just beef, ButcherBox has you covered. They also deliver Alaskan wild sockeye salmon, free-range organic chicken... Wow, there's got to be like 11 pounds of meat in here. Heritage breed pork and special bacon. Special bacon? Special because it's free. Use code SONGDIVERS at checkout to get $20 off and free bacon in your first butcher box. And shipping's free too. Special bacon and special shipping. That's special. Now, can you grill as well as you can play guitar? Visit butcherbox.com to order. So I want to get back to songwriting because there's a lot to that. And people have just heard you talk about that. Oh, I just kind of pulled that out of my butt. And for anybody that's a new, a new and budding songwriter, uh, they're going to be very frustrated with you. They're like, that's something you pulled out of your butt? Because it's there's it's a there's a lot of complexity there. Not just Even if you just isolate one thing that you're doing, like they're pretty complex melodies and vocal parts. Um, but then you're also looping a ton of stuff. I don't know if you want to talk about that and when you picked that up and decided to do that and how important that is to your your live show because that's that's a really cool aspect that some musicians use and that's part of their their thing but very very few in terms of percentages yeah i um i was uh working with a band for a little while and they introduced me to kimbra um she's a artist from australia and they showed me a video of her doing her song settle down using the first generation of the TC Helicon voice live touch. Um, and I was like, A, this woman's phenomenal. And B, what is that thing? And I need one. Mm-hmm. And so I bought one. And then I was like, what on earth do I do? This <laughs> so it's a steep learning curve. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because you think like, well, I'm just going to buy this. And then like, music will happen. No you have to f- figure out how how can you loop a song for people who aren't familiar with it yeah. we should just describe that it's a piece of electronic equipment that it's basically a recorder but you can control it on the spot mm-hmm. during a performance mm-hmm. record a section of music whether it's guitar or voice mm-hmm. and then you can immediately through a pedal stomp replay what you just recorded mm-hmm. and then you can continue to sing or play live over that so mm-hmm. that one person can you know, layer different sounds. I think what's also important to note there too is that you were controlling it. You know, a lot of people will do that. They'll put a couple parts together and then they go and they play the tune and they trigger those parts to come in on, you know, you get a harmony at the chorus or, you know, which is pretty typical. Um, you were controlling and augmenting stuff in the song while you were doing it, mm-hmm. which is, that's a whole another layer of complexity because you're doing some complicated vocal runs and you're remembering to hit these cues and these triggers and these timings. And you had, what, six, seven different layers going there, it felt like, at least? Oh, I don't know. I won't make you count them. But, yeah. But, I, but please. But sorry, yeah. I just wanted to give a little bit of... No, uh, it's good. Because uh, I think sometimes people don't understand what's going on when I'm using it. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there are looping devices that like you can just like... You can store 
sections of music that you that you did play, but it was maybe like three hours ago before you got to your gig. Or three years ago. Or three years ago that right. you're triggering live. Um, with this particular unit, you can't store stuff for that long. Like, you can store it for the duration of the song, and then when it's erased, like, everything's erased in there. But I think that's what's cool about it. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's difficult sometimes to explain to an audience that that's what's happening. Like, everything that you hear is happening live. I'm recording f- it for you, like, mm-hmm. as as the song is moving on. And that that has what has made it such a challenging device to use, is because not only do you have to figure out a, can I loop this song, or does it just not work because there are too many changes in the song, right? Um, B, how can I layer this? How can I do this live? How can I do it efficiently? Because that's another thing. That there are some audience members who don't like looping artists because maybe some looping artists might take four minutes to set up a song. And mm-hmm. they've played, they've already played all of the parts of that song that you're going to hear, and mm-hmm. then they pull it back. Mm-hmm. And so I've tried to take that and use it when I'm building a song to like make the most efficient process as possible mm-hmm. so that you're hearing some of the parts being recorded, but you're not waiting too long. It feels like an intro, maybe. So it's not too repetitive. And- right. You're not hearing that loop like 10 times before anything uh-huh. interesting really starts. So I try to make it very efficient and record everything and add effects. And then, you know, once you create that song with the looper, then I just have to play it over and over and over again to practice like all the button pushes it's almost it's an instrument sure like what buttons do i have to trigger at a certain time or like is this just catastrophically done like i can't like i have to erase and start over again um so it's definitely its own instrument it's been its own learning curve and you know the thought of of figuring out other songs on it is is also very intimidating um, but it's also helped me write a couple songs. But I try to keep it very simple. I, I wouldn't say anything that you're doing is simple. Um, you know, I, I'd say a simple loop use is people generally are like, cool, here's the top 40 song. I'm going to do the drum track by, you know, palm muting and hitting my strings and hitting the guitar. And then I'm going to do the little lead part. And then I'm going to maybe do a harmony. And then, like, you use all those things in the song. But you're, mm-hmm. to Ed's point, you're writing. There's, there's a lot of composition happening with yours. It's... Yes, you're doing some percussive things, and yes, you're doing some other things, but you went through in, in what you just played for us, you built that, and I didn't expect what ended up happening, even though I know the song. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's something you said for the point you were making that you will often see, it's like a movie, you see an 18-minute preview for the movie, you basically know the movie. Right. You know? mm-hmm. like In this case, that's not the case. So I think maybe what you're saying is simple is more of just you're being efficient with what you're doing so that you're not completely ruining what everybody's about to see. Yeah. Here, I should say. And, and that way you get to build the song the way the song needs to be built, you know, to reach the emotional peaks that you want it to hit. Like if you hit that, you know, in the first 30 seconds while you're building it, well then, you know, it loses that emotional energy. And there are some songs that like I have figured out how to loop, but I just feel like I can't do it efficiently enough. And it's everything's taking too long, and I just can't build it in a way that feels good. And so it's like, well, that's just not a song that can be looped. And I think now that people have heard you, at least in this episode, for knowing that somebody that hasn't heard you before, um, you know, you mentioned earlier being what you thought was a dancer that knew how to sing, and actually you're a singer that knows how to dance. I'd say you're a singer that really knows how to sing. I mean, you're you've got a very unique styling for what you're doing. It's super palatable because it is still very pop oriented and um, palatable, but you're 
I don't, you have an affectation that you are using some too in there that isn't the loop. Like you're doing that yourself. And I think that's important to note too, that it's, it's really, really cool and, um, and really interesting too, as part of what you're doing. And was that something you learned from your vocal coach or is that something that you started to develop? Um, that's something that I think the style of my voice has been formed over, you know, hundreds of hours of, of gigging. Cause when I was with the vocal coach, while he taught me, how to use my voice safely in a way that's not painful in a way that I could sing for eight hours and then mm-hmm. get in my car and sing on the way home. Cause it's not my voice that hurts. Like it's my hands and my shoulder. And my back. <laughs> um, but I didn't have, I didn't really have a style. My voice was just coming out of me the way that I talk, which is unfortunate because I sound very Midwestern, I think still. And it wasn't until a friend of mine, uh, Wes Stiles, who was originally in Tampa, and he's out in L.A., and he's been doing good things for himself. But I was taking some voice lessons from Wes Stiles, and Wes was the one who told me, you know, because I'm going through all these vocal exercises, and he's like, singers put on a voice. And I was like, oh. And then it was hours and hours of gigging to find out, like, what, what is that voice for me? What do I want that to sound like? You know, how can I change it? Like... There were there was a time where like I didn't know how to use vibrato, and then when I learned how to use vibrato, I used it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then you know you hear things from people like pop singers don't use vibrato, or like you sound like you're in a church. And so it's like okay, well you know what, how can I be honest with myself or true to myself and what I want my style to be? And then I realized that I could use vibrato texturally. Like sometimes you just want it to be clear. And sometimes you want it to be like a breath vibrato, you know, or sometimes you just want to have that little, you know, button at the end or whatever. Well, there's also a very human element to that, too. It's like, you you know, a lot of musicians or even non-musicians, like if you get something new, you generally want to use it a lot when you first get it. So there was a phase where it was just like vibrato everything. Like, I know how to do vibrato now. And and everyone's like, yeah, we get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Enough Wawa, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's been that's been its own journey too. Like, oh, okay, you know, for some songs, like you get the emotion through better with no vibrato or very limited or you know just in this place maybe. Do um, you have a name for what you like? What would you call the the specific thing that you're generally doing with your voice? I I don't know. It's a technique that. Uh seems related to um yodeling that technique where you control yeah like flipping your voice Mm -hmm. right that i do occasionally Mm -hmm. i think that's what you're asking about yeah that technique Mm -hmm. specifically it's one of those things i heard bet midler do it in a song Mm -hmm. and so i emulated her for at least that bit where i would flip between like my chest and my head voice Mm -hmm. and i remember i was singing in the car my mom was in the car and she's like how are you doing that i'm like i don't know bet midler She's like, that's not easy. And I'm like, oh. Anyway, that is to say that you have a very specific affectation that is really cool and, and really enjoyable to listen to. I'm glad to hear that. I I, um, I hear some of the other ladies that we have the pleasure of working with, Ed and I, in the Florida Bee Orchestra. You know, mm-hmm. Jamie Perlow and Whitney, Whitney James and, and Colleen Cherry. Mm-hmm. And just the stuff they can do with their voice. And it just makes me feel like, you know, I, I have so so much work still to do. <laughs> 
Um, I feel that way with every single member of the Florida Pure Orchestra. Yeah. I always feel like I'm looking around like, what am I doing here? I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definite, <laughs> like, imposter syndrome when I am working with that group. Like, yeah. what am I doing here? Well, in case people are just picking up with this episode and you didn't listen to the last episode with Jeremy Douglas, which we do encourage you to go back and listen to, he is the orchestrator of the Florida Bee Orchestra. But, Ed, do you want to quickly just tell listeners, if you didn't listen to that episode, what the Florida Bee Orchestra is? It's more or less an elaborate excuse for Jeremy to get as many of his <laughs> talented friends on stage at one time as he, as he possibly can. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Which and- has resulted in a collection of, as Ed said, really talented musicians that are generally playing with big national acts when they come through the area um, or are people that are part of you know individual or independent acts such as these two musicians I have in the room with me right now, Cassandra and Ed. Um, and they're doing all kinds of wild stuff. They do everything from... Um, you know, a Bjork flared night. Um, they've right. done the Wizard of Oz. Uh, they've done Buffy. They just recently Ed helped um, lead Nick Drake and then Joni Mitchell, which Mitchell, we were talking Kate about Bush. earlier. Kate Bush, yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, really, really cool. And um, Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just really, really awesome stuff. So if you get the chance to check out one of those shows, a go back and listen to Jeremy's episode because you'll enjoy this one even more um, because of of the writing he's done with Cassandra. But then also because. You'll definitely want to go see a Bjorkish show. They're so oh, yeah. cool. I mean, it's, I don't want to say glorified cover band because it's not. It's like if you could go to a David Bowie concert, except it's local musicians, it's mm-hmm. 20 players on stage. You mm-hmm. can't go to see a David Bowie show, but you, you know, you can relive that magic with a 20 piece band, 20 piece orchestra. And I think it's really interesting that like Jeremy, a lot of times his mind thinks in games. Mm hmm. Like, what are the rules of this game? Mm-hmm. And one of the rules of the Florida Bee Orchestra is that if you have a synthesizer part, you're going to reproduce from a Peter Gabriel, like a signature synth synth part. Well, a horn section is going to do that. Like, it's all acoustic instruments, except for an electric guitar. Mm-hmm. 99.99% of the time, it's Jeremy reimagining all those sounds from the record and making them happen on stage with... 25 people. 25 people who uh, have rehearsed together one time before, like right. one time, 25 people together before they get up and do That's that the job. other thing we talked about. Like we rehearse in sections. Yeah. You get together. You mentioned Whitney James and Jamie, mm-hmm. Perlow and Colleen. Like you're typically working with the vocalists and working on background harmonies or, yeah. or your lead vocal while they're backing you up. Well, and, and I think it's important to note, too, that so if you're one of our national listeners thinking about, you know, if you're one of those people that hears like, oh, but they're local musicians, like, no, I mean, the national acts that are touring, when they're home, they're local and they're musicians. Yeah. Like, these are the best players, some of the best players in the country, and they ha- just happen to live here and they're part of this. These are the players that are getting the tap on the shoulder to join ELO when they're in town and they're being, you know, they're hiring orchestra or symphony players. So... It's a. It's a very huge compliment to get the tap on the shoulder to do that and be a part of that. How did how did that come about? How did you get hooked up with them? Uh, Jeremy and I have known each other for years, um, and he was going to do the Bjork show, the first Bjork show before it was even the Bjork, Florida Bjorkestra at mm-hmm. the Hideaway. Yeah. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to sing backup vocals, and I don't know. I know I've told Jeremy this, but I really don't know if he understands his power. That man can tell me to do anything, and I will just be like, okay. It's, Uh-oh. It, yeah. You let that cat out of there. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, he's just one of those... You trust he, his musical judgment. Yeah, he is like... If he is like, you need to do this thing, then it's like, okay. I, You know, there are very few people 
in my sphere. I am one of those. I'm a little sister. I am one of those people where if you tell me what to do, I will be like, you can go f- off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a little sister, and that that rings true. Yeah, it doesn't matter if I wanted to do that. Now that you're telling me to do that, I will be like, nope. And Jeremy is one of the few people, because I respect him so much as a musician and like as a person in the community, that if he's like, you need to take a musical theater improv class, I'm like, okay, I will go do that. You should be in my Bjork show. Okay, I will do that. You know, and and then it's to the point where it's just like, how can I be a part of whatever you're doing? Like, like, what role can I play, please? Like, well, it's I, a huge, you know. it's a huge compliment, and deservedly so. So, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting to uh, to get to hear you do your stuff, though, here with us. I would have to say it's sort of the flip side with Jeremy, though. I think when he really loves and trusts an artist or a friend who's an artist, that he'll go out of his way to do whatever you want him involved in. Oh yeah, absolutely. So. Well, when I had my CD release for this, I'm like, how, how am I, I don't have, you know, I had a band that I was working with at the time, but what we were bringing to, you know, the local bars or whatever was not what this album was. And so it didn't make sense for us to like rework these songs off this album that I'm releasing. Like what? No, that doesn't make sense. And so I asked Jeremy, I'm like, you know, can we, do you think... I don't even know how it came about. It's just, do you think we could put a band together? And he's like, well, yeah, we'll work it out. And then it was him and Daniel Navarro and Dave Hamar. Um, and I got my friend Rose to play cello on some of it. Cause I was like, we have to have at least a cello, you know? Um, and some friends in the aerialist community coming out to do aerial stuff and had one rehearsal with the band before we did the CD release show, and um, and do you want to tell people what the aerialist community is? Uh, in my spare time, um, I like to do aerial acrobatics, as um, one does. Uh, of course, trapeze and aerial silks, kind of like the Cirque du Soleil stuff, but a little more amateurish um, for me. I don't speak for my friends; they're phenomenal, um, and uh, and it kind of all evolved after Jeremy sent me back out of thin air and I was like, this has to be the title track. And then I was playing a four hour gig, um, shortly after that. And you know, my four hour gig is pretty rote at this point. Like I can be somewhere else mentally the whole time. I can watch a movie with closed captioning and not mess any of the words up. So I'm at a four hour gig and I'm thinking about this title track and like, how am I going to do this album now? And I got the idea like, Oh, I should, you know, get a photo of me in silks for, for the cover because that would be that's in line with that and then I was like oh, what if I got some aerial friends to like perform for the CD release that would be like really cool what if I did a video with you know one of the aerial girls and it just like evolved because it seemed you know appropriate and I had the friends and the, the connections to be able to make that happen and I think I made it you know a really special event and it was it was fun and Jeremy made that happen you know with the band I honestly don't know what I would have done because I hadn't worked, the looper didn't exist for me, you know. I Most of those songs, I didn't even know how to play on guitar because I didn't write them on guitar. And we should mention, too, Daniel and Dave, you mentioned the rhythm section. Two other Florida Bjorkestrans. Yep. It's like, that's like the dream band oh, right was, there. Like. <laughs> so, one of the songs that I just don't even play out live off the album is How Absurd. And it, it's um, pretty complex on the album. 
to the point where Jeremy was like, we're just going to do kind of like a jazz version of it for the CD release. And I was like, okay, that's fine. We rehearsed it once and I was pretty nervous about it. And I had my friend Kurt doing trapeze and we had rehearsed it day. We had rehearsed it that week. And then we were, we did a loose rehearsal of everything day of in the venue. And then when the time came to sing that song, I sang the whole first verse uh, at double speed. What I didn't realize was going on because Jeremy and Dave and Daniel behind me just were like, okay. And then I got to the chorus and the chorus, you know, is pretty slow. And, and so I got on board with the chorus and I was like, huh, that was weird. And I got back to the second verse and now I'm singing it in normal time. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) I sang the whole first verse, like, like double speed. And there was not a hitch because the guys behind me just were like, okay, we're doing this double time, whatever. It's, then, it's a truly incredible thing. It was. That's a. That's horrifying. And B. That's awesome. It was <laughs> astonishing. I like. I just. I turned around when I was done. I was like, "Thank you." I guess that's why Jeremy wants a band of twenty-five people like that up with him. It's just like no other feeling like that. Yeah, I, man, it was. It, it is, but it's incredibly liberating as a musician to to not have to worry about those fundamentals. You know, they were they were so generous with their time. Jeremy asked them if they could do it. I think I had worked with them on the on the Bjork show at the Hideaway. I think that was the only other time that I knew of them. And Jeremy just asked them if they would do it. And they're like, sure. And I was like, I don't know what my budget is. Like, my budget is probably zero. Like, I probably can't pay you. And everyone was like, we do it for the music. And I'm like, you don't even know me. Like, <laughs> it, oh, it was so touching. Thankfully, like, I had... Um, kind of donor angel come in and I was able to pay the aerialists and musicians something. It wasn't, it wasn't anything what they were worth, but you know, I felt, I felt happy that I could give them something because they had just given me so much that day. I still think back on it. I'm just like, <laughs> I just want to cry. So how long ago was the CD release party? Uh, August, 2016. Okay. And are you working on another album right now? Um, always, but nothing, nothing on the books that you're, Got a, got a line in the sand Yeah, for. I had a, a short period where I was like, I'm going to do a concept album about my childhood. And then I wrote like three songs. And I was like, this is depressing and I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Did and, you have a depressing childhood? Um, I didn't have a depressing childhood, but kind of rehashing um, some, of the, some of the trauma. My parents got divorced when I was eight or nine because my dad... Um, was having some mental health issues, which in the late 80s, post-traumatic stress disorder was not a thing. It was wasn't... he a veteran? Uh, yeah. Okay. So he had been in the Vietnam War. And I think post-traumatic stress disorder just wasn't something that had a name to it yet. You know, obviously it existed. Like, obviously mm-hmm. soldiers were experiencing that. But I don't think it was something that was maybe... Diagnosed. Diagnosable. Yeah. Well, and not just soldiers, but right. people experiencing all different walks of life yeah so we're experiencing that in the household as you know kids he's starting to struggle with issues and and some substance abuse and um you know he was diagnosed with some other things that you know was it bipolar manic or was it post-traumatic stress disorder you know was it it could have been both of those things who knows so i just was trying to kind of create this album like really parsing out those feelings and understanding you know what you go through as a child and you just are angry and hate a parent for not being normal or mm-hmm. 
And then when you look back on it, you just experience sympathy and empathy in a way that you wish that you would have had the capacity for. And that's kind of Tiptoes and Whispers is one of the songs that came out of me. Like, maybe I should do a concept album about this. Like, I had a cover picked out for it and everything and and wrote a handful of songs. I was like, maybe I don't want to do a full album about this. Like, I'm I'm happy with the song, but maybe I don't, I don't need a whole album of that. I don't feel like that's my personality anymore is to write a bunch of sad angsty songs i know i I have a lot of sad sounding songs but um but that one in particular is just kind of you know being a kid in a in a house with someone who's experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder and they're trying to cope with that and maybe they can't be the parent they want to be or the parent that they used to be able to be and now they don't have the capacity for anymore and you don't have the capacity to understand why they're behaving the way they mm-hmm. are or going through what they're going through. Yeah. Is that a song you would share with us? Or yeah. Feel like playing that one? Yeah. Yeah. 
Do end up putting that record out? I think it'll end up on an album. I just don't know that the album will be solely focused on my childhood. I don't, I don't know if that needs to happen. Even for me emotionally, I feel I feel like I've moved into a space of understanding that time better. And the um, my when I was eleven, my dad ended up committing suicide, um, and he is one of I think the statistic now is twenty two veterans a day. Who commit suicide? Oh my god, it's insanely. Hard. Um, and you know, it's it's a problem that you know they're getting better at dealing with, but soldiers don't want to show weakness. You know, they're taught not to, and it's and you know how how do you get help for that? How do you cope with the things that you've seen that you shouldn't? No human should ever have to see. So I feel like I've come to peace with a lot of that, and so for me emotionally, I just don't see why I would need to write songs to hash that out um, you know because a lot of times you write music therapeutically for yourself like I'm writing this because I'm trying to figure this out or I'm trying to process this thing and I feel like I processed that a, you know a long time ago I made my peace with it um, so well, one of the things you're doing when you do that is you are drawing a listener's attention to that phenomenon yeah I mean you're you're making trying to make someone else aware and I think that the way you did that is is a pretty effective way of doing it because you're literally going back to your perspective as a child and conveying that through your lyrics. Yeah. So the the limited experience really comes through. I mean, the, the concerns that a child has, like playing games, and I think in the bridge you're like, I don't want to play this game. Cushion, like, cushion forts. You don't understand. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, we're we're playing, and now all of a sudden it's not fun, and this turned bad, and why is it bad? And can't you just come out and play? Can't we? Can't you come out of like basically your shell? Can't you come out of this whatever mood is happening and and play? Can't we? Can't we do that? Because I don't like this game that we're playing anymore. Would you say you know you mentioned that you've you know you've made peace um, with some of these things. Are, are you a songwriter that's writing for catharsis? Are you writing to work through things, or are you writing as an exercise because you enjoy it? What what's your what's your mechanism? What's that's your a catalyst? Great, that is a great question. 
And maybe that explains why I've been at a standstill, because I think for a while I was really writing for catharsis. Um, Because I wasn't dancing, and for a long time dancing was my catharsis. Like, after, like, the day my dad died, I went to dance class that night, because I didn't know what else to do. And I'm, like, doing plies and tendus at the bar, crying. And I, I threw myself into that. And like I said earlier in the show, like, I think that that saved me. I think that I could have turned to anything else, you know, that, you know... Uh, but I turned to dance and that was my catharsis. And then like, as I transitioned into music, it's like, I, you know, I still have that, you know, aerial acrobatics. It's not the same as dancing. And so I think, especially when I wasn't doing aerial, you know, music, I was turning to that for catharsis. And, uh, and then it's like, well, now I'm in a stable, loving relationship with good communication. So there are only so many love songs that I can write, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't have any breakup songs to write anymore. I think that's why I was like, well, maybe I'll kind of like write about it. And I think I've just been at a standstill because I don't really, maybe I just haven't found the joy in the technical process of just sitting down and like, I'm going to write a song about nonsense. I, I don't typically find songwriting enjoyable. And I, I know that's partially because I, I'm not a music theory person. I think that if I took the time to learn music theory, I would enjoy it because I love math. I think if I took that on, it would open up other possibilities for me. But as it is, sometimes I just find it incredibly frustrating um, because I'm trying to write by ear. So I know vocally what I want to do or melodically. And then it's like, how do I find this on the guitar? Like, what chord is this even? Like, I don't know. Why am I doing this? I'm not even a musician. Like, you start having (laughs) imposters and you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I a songwriter? I just can't even... So I... Although some of those people, like when they become too accomplished and know too much, then they miss the, uh, the happy accidents. Because they're trying to technically like analyze it too much. Yeah, they just they know what they they know to avoid certain things that somebody would otherwise do on accident that turn uh, into something cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I've been at a standstill with it. Um, I, I think part of it too is like I tell myself like you need to write, like you need to put out another album. Like it's been three years. It's time. And then there's that like, you know little kid sister part of me that's like no screw you yeah <laughs> like <laughs> well it's also you know some people put out a record so my dad and i talk about neil young all the time and that neil young has written some of the most incredible stuff you'll ever hear and he's also written some of the stuff i never want to hear again yeah because he has this thing it seems like he just feels this need to put everything that he thinks of out Right, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily a great exercise either. Some people might argue with me. Some people might say, "I love everything Neil Young does because it's Neil Young," you know, and like, fine, that's great. I don't think the majority of people would agree with you. Then there's also like having something to say, you know, and if there's nothing to say right now, and you're the type of songwriter that is like, I I'm singing because I have something I need to figure out and work through, and that's meaningful to me, and therefore it's meaningful to share with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then until I have something else that is meaningful to feel and share and say again, I'm just wasting your time, you know? Yeah. I think, I think you kind of hit that pretty strong. Like, I think I'm just like, well, if I don't have anything strong to say, like, what, you know, what am I going to do? I could sit down and write as an exercise. Like, am I going to enjoy that? What, what am I doing? Uh, Going back to Neil Young, I think there is good in, in just writing, writing as much as possible like mm-hmm. I, I know the value of that like it's not like you're I don't think it's futile to just write songs and never do anything with them to your point about Neil Young 
maybe just because you're writing all of these songs, maybe they don't all have to be on records. Like, I certainly <laughs> have songs that just, like, don't exist on a record and never will because, I, you know, it was something that I wrote mm-hmm. as an exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, it does, or, you it, know. it does depend on what type of songwriter you are. It's going to laugh and then roll his eyes at me. But you take a songwriter, somebody like a Jason Isbell, that guy was never going to do anything else. He was going to be a songwriter, um, you know, from early on. And his songs are, a lot of them are, they're, I mean, yes, there's a lot of stuff that's first person, but a lot of his songs are stories somebody else told him. And it's just, he is just interpreting the world around him. Kirk Adams, who we just had on, um, who's a you know resident at the hideaway, like a lot of his stuff is just commentary on the world around him. So it really depends on the type of songwriter. Phase of life is one thing. Sure. You know, you mentioned just you're in a happier phase now. You're also older than you were when you were 11 and going through stuff. And now you have the capacity and some of the life experience to help you deal with some of those things. So yeah. music's a different type of you know, mechanism for you. Um, so I think those are, you know, those are all things that go into it, which also brings us back to one of the important questions we ask every show. Are you a music first, lyrics first, or title first songwriter? Uh, lyrics first. Almost, like, consistently lyrics first. You might be our first lyrics first answer. Uh, I would I would have guessed that about you, too. Not just from your songs, though. I guess I have some background information. Just, <laughs> hear, you know, hearing from Jeremy... Um, the way you two work together and the fact that I guess it has to do with this, the song choice that we talked about out of thin air mm-hmm. was almost all just lyric and melody mm-hmm. sent to him. And the fact that you seems like the journaling sort of grew into your, your songwriting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was a period of time where I was just trying to write, you know, daily. And so then when I was you know, had some interesting chords I was working with, whatever, I'd kind of, like, leaf back into, you know, and I would just see a sentence. Like, Savannah Tree was just, um, just the, the chorus, basically. Just written down, without any intention of turning it into a full song, and, uh, I was like, no, that's, um, I actually thought the chorus was really funny. (laughs) You know what, I was gonna ask you about that, because, so the Savannah Tree... And in the chorus, you're saying, maybe I'll, I'll be, uh, I can't remember the first line, but I'll be, maybe, am I food for lions? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll make a pretty savanna tree. Are you talking about, like, feeding your body, feeding a tree? Like, becoming a tree? Like, <laughs> your yeah. Your buried, dead body? Like, like, like maybe, maybe I'm coal and I'll turn into diamonds under all this pressure, right? Uh-huh. Or maybe... Um, I'm food for the lions, and then they'll poop me out, and I'll turn into a tree on on the savanna. Savanna tree. So it's that song. That chorus is a little about lion poop. Yeah. Did you guys catch that when when you hear the song here in a second? Because I'm hoping you'll play that one for us now. When she says the word lion poop, <laughs> <laughs> the words together, it's hyphenated as a lyric. And just remember that lyric came first. Um. But yeah. So but. In that dark, mysterious song, you know, if you're not really paying much attention, you could just... I, I know my mom, when she first heard that song, she's like, so what is that? Is that, like, about... Are you referring to, like, the Tree of Life? You know, she's thinking, like, the Lion King, like, mm-hmm. uh, this is powerful savanna tree, and it's, like, the symbol of, like, life. And I was like, um, no, like... She's like, I'm picking up a real lion poop. Yeah, kind of like, if I got here. fed to the lions, then they would poop me out, and my best hope could be that, like, I'll be a pretty tree on the savanna. So I thought that course was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's how that song started was like this blurb that had no melody to it that I had written I don't know weeks prior 
and uh, decided that that I thought that I liked it and I wanted it to be the chorus of my song. <laughs> Let's hear it. I want to hear it. Yeah. yeah, sure. you pick a lion why a lion um the i mean the lion was more of a metaphor like you feed someone to the lions like you know you just um and and that's how i was feeling before i quit my 
day job, as it were, to pursue music. Like, uh, maybe maybe this is a rough thing. Maybe I'm cold and under this pressure of doing this. Like, I'll turn, I'll shine. Yeah, I'll be a diamond. A or, you know, I'm just feeding myself to the lions and, and everything is going to turn to shit. And then my best hope is to, you know, grow from that shit into That's a tree. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's, it's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think I was getting... Almost maybe what your mom was saying, more mm-hmm. of like the circle of life, not exactly, but how um, we... Well, she's not not saying that. No, that's true. That's true. But, uh, you know, how we, what we contribute to the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe we contribute everything, like maybe we give it all and we're transformed and reborn in, into some, something else for like, some other living thing's benefit. Like yeah. a lion turd. Like a lion turd, yeah. I always hesitate to tell, like, the meaning behind that lyric because I feel like it really destroys all of the mystery behind it. No, you know what? It's kind of the other... This might not be pertinent at all, but it kind of made me think of another song of yours, A Cloud. Okay. And I kind of wanted to highlight that one anyway because I'm really interested in the little video that you made for that song. But I kind of draw a similar theme from the lyrics in that song... To me, it sounds like the theme is like sacrifice, like what you give to the world and what you contribute, and sometimes it's a sacrifice. Shrinking as I make things grow. Yeah, I make things grow, and maybe they'll never even know. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm shrinking to make something else grow. I just love that that concept. That's one of my favorite verses from you. And that's such a happy little song, but it, I sort of see a thematic thread between that and, and Savannah Tree. That's so funny. In a way. It, it certainly wasn't conscious. And A Cloud really um, came from a haiku that I wrote. And A Cloud was literally just a happy little song about a cloud. Like, there's no story, in, at least in my mind, when I was writing it. Mm-hmm. I didn't wasn't thinking of any thematic ties or anything like that. I was just like, oh, that was a cute little... I grabbed my ukulele and and just thought about what it would be like to be a cloud. You think, and, you think a little... Uh, some meanings come out of your subconscious or is it out of my subconscious that, that you draw from that lyric? Because even though you, you didn't set out to say that, I think it conveys something about your personality that's kind of buried and... Without question. You know... Yeah, I mean, you're forming a character for like. There's not a lot of cloud characters out there, you know, for you to draw on. So, <laughs> your imagination of what you think a cloud's life like. I mean, that's very you. Yeah. You know. I mean, where else is that coming from? I don't other know. than your bum. <laughs> well, <laughs> other than my bum. Yeah. <laughs> a little cloud coming out of my bum. I just I love the Man, whole. Yeah, that that's a theme in this too. Apparently. <laughs> well, you ended up naming your record off of the the one song you thought was a throwaway. So I think that's yeah, really interesting pull it too. out of my bum. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the process of watching you um, posting on Facebook, and I think this goes a little bit toward what musicians have to do nowadays in contemporary. You know, there's so much you have to do to kind of create content mm-hmm. and promote yourself. And uh, so you went through this for the video for a cloud. Mm-hmm. You decided you were going to make a video, and you made this video all by yourself, like completely by hand. Uh-huh. And I want you to describe a little bit about it. But you paste, you posted on Facebook the making of the video, and it was kind of a string of of posts that um, teased it out. And then it turned out to this be this really great, cute little video that I'm just I'm impressed with you. I <laughs> it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and maybe that's why I want to write more music is so I can make more videos because I do I do seem to enjoy that process now that I've gotten to know the software a lot more and making a cloud certainly made me familiar with what I could do with software to correct mistakes and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I made a stop motion video um, with some craft foam that I cut out because um, there was a period in my life that I wanted to be a cartoonist. So like I when I was in my early teens maybe um i was drawing lots of little cartoons and stuff and so i used that i guess to to be able to create all these little um cartoon elements and i used my iphone to take i think over 3000 still frames to make that video it's super cool. You did Thank it on you. your iPhone? Yeah. <laughs> did you really? Well, that I, makes it I, even cooler. So How like did I you do like res- registration and all well, that? Well, like- I, I had the iPhone set like on a mic boom stand mm-hmm. um, to do all the shots. And then I would export like whatever scene I did that night um, to uh, my uh, software mm-hmm. on my computer and let my computer like hit, handle some of the heavier hitting stuff changing the background mm-hmm. um and color correcting stuff and um and whatnot but yeah it was frame by frame uh on an app that i that i had on my iphone mm-hmm. it turned out great i love it thank you yeah, yeah. i'm super proud of that and it's so funny because like I really had to do that video chronologically mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. I could go back and shoot like a scene, but I'd have to have like the specific frame numbers. So like as it went along, I'm really doing it chronologically. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if you had to complete a scene at at one sitting. Yeah, like the flower scene. You can watch as the video progresses; things get more complicated because the grass was, starts to grow. Right, and yeah. I was—it was like I was starting to learn more mm-hmm. what I could do, and oh, it looks more. So I had shot the flower scene, which was already like crazy complicated, but it was pretty, you know, uh, disjointed. Mm-hmm. But it was okay because like everything's kind of like it's stop motion. Yeah, and. Uh, and then by the time I got to the scene where the sun is sipping up the cloud with a straw. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's where it got like, like I loaded it onto my computer and I watched it and I was like, oh, that looks like it's legit animated. That doesn't look stop motion anymore. It looks like it's animated. Oh, it's really cool. Because you were learning and perfecting. and Right. Yeah. So it was like, okay, well, it has to start at this frame number. It has to end at this frame number. Okay, so, like, and then working out every frame in between and where things have to move. And then, like, oh, my God, it looks animated. And then compared to that scene, the flower scene looked horrible. So I had to shoot the <laughs> flower scene. you go back scene. and do it again? I had to do oh. it again. I was going to say, it looks pretty consistent, so. I had to, like, you know, I, I, I don't even know how many little tiny flowers and different sizes I cut out to make that scene um, even more anim- animated than it was like on the first round. So it was, it was a learning process, but that part I think is fun for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the songwriting part is sometimes just agony and I hate myself during the whole process. I hate the song. <laughs> um, I hate myself. I hate myself for not learning more theory. Why can't I play guitar? I'm a horrible singer. Like that. These are all the things I experience when I write a song. And I then find once it, you're done, you get super nervous and anxious and you go perform them. <laughs> yeah. And, but then when I'm seeing them, I like them. Cause and I then when it's over, you're like, did I enjoy that? Or what? Yeah. I <laughs> <know>. <laughs> 
should dance. Uh, but like, I really enjoyed the process of making that video. And you can tell as the video goes along, it gets more complicated. And I've learned more by the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like a cartoon. Well, it's not just stop motion. Well done, anymore. yeah. Thank you. I want everybody to go watch that. Thank yeah, you. Really, check that out. really cute. Thank you. <laughs> so, I have a question for you as we kind of wrap here. So one of the things Jeremy talked about, and it might be a question we start to bring into our regular repertoire, but he talked about kind of three things that were important to him as he shifted his his thinking about being a musician. And the second one that he talked about was something actually his wife um, had, had talked about. And um, at some point their accountant asked, learning that they were both musicians, like, oh, did you ever want to be famous? And what Jeremy sort of took away from that in her response was that you know, she basically replied like, "Oh, did you? Would you ask a mechanic if they ever wanted to be famous? You know, like it's a job. This is what I do. It's a, it's a skill. That's how I feed the family. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I think a question that I have, especially now that I'm hearing you say, "Hey, look, I've been a songwriter for years. The songwriting process is arduous for me. I'm happy right now. I don't feel a catalyst in me to go right. I'm enjoying performing because it's what I do. Mm-hmm. What?" Now, and maybe answer this as what did it look like when you first started? And then what now is success as a songwriter for you? Is it fame? Is it Nashville? Is it Bright Lights? Is it is it having your stuff show up in movies? Is it making sure you have a daily gig that allows you to play music because that's something you really enjoy? Like, talk about that a little bit. Um, I think success for me when I started out was like recognition. And then... Recognition and feeling validated by your validated, peers? Validated, yeah. Recognition, validation, um, all the wrong reasons to be in this business <laughs> because you never get any of that. <laughs> Achieving that is such a seeming lottery in terms of what the general public considers to be you are recognized as a musician, mm-hmm. not what we consider being recognized in our community here you know what i mean Mm -hmm. because there's a difference there and and how people see you you know when i'm playing at restaurants like like the only thing they'll say to me is like oh you should go on the voice like that's like that's the only way okay i'll go on it tomorrow right but but somebody clapping for you with chicken wing stained hands (laughs) and ed paying you a compliment or jeremy tapping on the shoulder to do the orchestra that's validation that's validation but that you know, those times are so far and few between, and most of the time, even when I'm booking for my tours and stuff, like it's all rejection. Every day it's rejection. Mm-hmm. All yeah. the time it's like following up and having to ask for work all the time. Um, so I think at the start for me, I was looking for recognition, and then at some point, it's you have to find a different reason, and I know that I really enjoy singing take everything else if i could have someone else book the gigs for me if i didn't have to be bothered with any of that if i could just show up somewhere and sing at a gig whatever gig don't even care the gig if i could just show up and sing i would be so happy you do a, at least one you do a yearly tour right mm-hmm. um and talk a little bit about what it takes to put that together how do you string together dates and, and put a tour together for i yourself? send out hundreds of emails of the like, I've been touring now for six years, um, and of the venues I played at, like I've had, I have maybe two or three that will actually reach out to the me, to me at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. and they'll be like, what, "What date do you want this summer?" Everyone else, even though they're repeats, like I'm still chasing that down, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and how long is the tour? I try to make it a month. Uh-huh. I don't enjoy booking the tour. Mm-hmm. I do really enjoy. The tour. Just the tour. 
mm-hmm. and and traveling. I enjoy hanging out with my friends. I enjoy playing the shows. I try to make as many of them as possible. Do you mix oh, in any house concerts or how do you? I like, try to do house concerts. Mm-hmm. I don't. I did one house concert on this last tour. I'll, I'll do whatever. Mm-hmm. I try to make them all proper shows. Right. When I say proper shows, I mean like original music, mm-hmm. half hour, maybe an hour. But I will play at bar. I'll play wherever. I don't care if I'm mm-hmm. playing a three-hour cover gig. Like, but it connects me to another city. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't. I would whatever. And if it makes me more money, because I'm not going to make money in the next city. Like, mm-hmm. I do right. have to subsidize. Like, pay for the tour. You know. Sure. So these are the things I'm learning about myself. I love traveling. I love singing. I love performing. Being on stage, I just love the whole thing about like you know feeling like you have secret squirrel access to the back of the stage and all that. You know, like I just love, I love that element of it. Um, and so I think, I think for me moving forward, it's just like how can I, how can I just make a living and enjoy myself and still, you know, not experience burnout. I'm still trying to find the answer to that question. What does that mean to me? But like I said, if I could just show up at a gig and sing, I'd be so happy and not be bothered with the other process. Well, you heard it here, folks. She's looking for a manager. I am for hire. <laughs> Please. Well, Cassandra, we really appreciate you being here with us and sharing so much with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah. for playing for us. Thanks for being here. And we'll look forward to it. Well, I mean, you're going you're gonna to put another record out eventually. I must. Yeah. So come back and <laughs> come back and see us when you do that. We'll see you next time. I'll see you at the next orchestra rehearsal. Heck yeah. <laughs> Riding. listening to song divers thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days songs we heard in this episode were delayed departure out of thin air savannah tree and a cloud all from cassandra's album out of thin air we also heard the as yet unreleased song tiptoes and whispers to hear more and see more of Cassandra Rose, first go to her website, CassandraRose.com. K-A-S-O-N-D-R-A-R-O-S-E.com. And you can find her and her music on all the places you go to follow and hear people. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Vimeo, Pandora, Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, all the things. Give her full record a listen, and then we'll see you at one of her upcoming shows. Well, let's bring it back to the front end. Yes, we? let's. We generally start all of our guests with the where, front end. <laughs> well, it's we are gentlemen after all. I'm just snorting. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Song Divers is a production of Ybor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of St. Petersburg, Florida.